This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Zoom Video Conferencing. Welcome to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. Before we start, let's define some terms so we know what we're talking about. You may be hearing some names for the virus, which rather than tell you what's going on, may muddy the waters a bit. And if there was ever a time for us to be clear about what's going on, now's the time. So let's start with coronavirus. Just calling this the coronavirus is flat out wrong. And I'm not just trying to be technically correct, even though it's a famous joke from Futurama that that's the best kind of correct. A coronavirus is simply a family of viruses. And like any family, some members are fairly harmless and some you don't even invite to Thanksgiving. Common cold is often a type of coronavirus. Annoying, but as the old joke goes, if you don't treat it, it lasts a week. But if you do, it goes away in seven days. This particular coronavirus, as you know, isn't that. You may have heard the term a novel coronavirus, and that's because viruses mutate, and what we have here is something we haven't seen before. It's easily spread, and what's worse, unlike many viruses, can be spread even before you show symptoms. The name of this novel coronavirus is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2. That is the actual virus, and that is the thing to be aware of. So then what is this COVID-19 we hear about? Well, that's the name for the disease you get from the virus. You've actually dealt with such things before. For instance, HIV is the virus that causes the disease called AIDS, and it's like that. One is the virus, one is the disease. And it's important for scientists to keep that straight because some are working on a way to protect against the virus and others are working on a cure for the disease. Because what COVID-19 does is cause our autoimmune system to go into overdrive, in what's called a cytokine storm. These are proteins that are meant to protect you, but when they over-multiply, well, anyone remember the Star Trek episode about Tribbles? A few were cute and made you feel better, and when they over-multiplied, they overwhelmed the food and oxygen supply and threatened to kill everyone in the enterprise. So, yeah, like that, only for real, causing hyperinflammation and honest-to-gosh deadly. So those are the terms, and that is what we're dealing with. Larry Brilliant is one of the world's foremost pandemic experts who was instrumental in the eradication of smallpox. He appeared on the Soul of the Nation podcast to explain how the coronavirus compares to other pandemics we've experienced. I'll start with a pandemic I did not live through, which was 1918. I'm old, but not that old. That was what's called the Spanish flu. It's not fair to Spain. Uh, But that, let's call that the great influenza. Uh, That killed somewhere between 30 and 100 million people. It's almost unthinkable that today would be 
maybe as much as 300 million people dying. This is not that. This is not the zombie apocalypse. This is not a mass extinction event. But it is going to be worse than the other three influenza pandemics we've had in this century. 1957, uh, an influenza pandemic that killed 1 million people. 1968, an influenza pandemic that's called the Asian flu because it began in Asia. And just like, like this one, I think it had a tremendously negative effect on, on stock markets and people's livelihoods. So most of the people in the financial world know that one. And in 2008, the swine flu. And that was a, a pandemic that the, the virus circulated in the world and infected more than 2 billion people. But it didn't have the lethality that was feared. So we escaped by the turn of a roulette wheel on, on the genome of the virus. So if I placed it in perspective, COVID is less than we had in 1918, but more than we had in the Asian flu of 68 and the pandemic of 57. To hear the full interview with Larry Brilliant, find the Soul of the Nation on your favorite podcast app. Now here's the host of the Soul of the Nation, the Reverend Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, an American Christian social justice group, and the host of the Soul of the Nation podcast. Good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good. I love the title, Changed Forever. We won't be the same after this. So how we act now, how we care for each other, will maybe shape how we are after this going forward. I love that title. Well, along those lines, you're a member of the Circle of Protection, which sounds, you know, very endearing at these times. But tell us about the purpose of that organization. Well, this is really a a broad gathering coalition of faith leaders, institutions that has been working for more than 10 years to protect uh, low-income people, poor people, hungry people, particularly in terms of budget processes and all the stuff in Washington that goes on where the ones Jesus called the least of these, he said, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was sick, I was a stranger, immigrant, that word means in prison. And the way you treat them is how you treat me. Well, that text of Matthew 25 is almost absent in this town of Washington, D.C., where the least of these are often the least important and the most powerful are the most important. So we, uh, the Roman Catholic bishops, the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, the National Council of Churches, all the denominations, we're very diverse theologically and politically, but we are together now for 10 years committed to protecting the poor and the vulnerable in our government's uh, processes about budgets and spending and all the rest. It's a big job. Speaking of spending, you've said the federal budget is a moral document. Indeed. Tell us what you mean by that and how it applies to the stimulus packages that Congress is working with. Sure. Well, a budget is indeed a moral document that reveals um, our priorities, whether it's a family budget or a little church budget or organizational budget or a federal budget or states and localities. Who's important? What's important? Who are we looking after? Who are we taking care of? Who matters to us and who doesn't? These A budget reveals our moral priorities and moral choices. And I would go so far as to say that from a, a religious point of view, a biblical point of view, certainly uh, kings and rulers are judged not by their gross national product or their military firepower or their how much their popular culture is envied, but how they treat the poor and most vulnerable, how those on the bottom are faring 
is always the biblical test of those who govern. Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners and the host of the Soul of the Nation podcast. Thank you for being with us. Blessing to be with you. In addition to caring for our physical and spiritual health, it's also critically important we tend to our mental health. Robin Wright is a columnist for The New Yorker and, of course, a multi-award winner for her coverage of the Middle East. Her latest book, Rock the Cosma, Rebellion and Rage Across the Islamic World. Robin, the piece that you just did for The New Yorker covered something that there's been very little talk about, which is the fact that in this period of self-isolation, we're talking about more than a third of Americans being told to stay home when we are at the highest number of American households consisting of single people in our history. And what kind of an effect is that having on people? Well, loneliness, it turns out, has a tremendous impact on health in ways that have nothing to do with COVID-19. In fact, it leads to an increased rate of early death, loneliness uh, by 26%. Social isolation can increase the rate of mortality by 29%. uh, living alone by 32%. And that has no relation to age, gender, location, or culture. That's across the board. We are looking at a situation where 28% of American households have just a single person in them. We've been talking, you know, about general numbers here. There are people who are self-isolating right now who suffer from depression, people who are dealing with PTSD. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And one of the lessons I learned from talking to neuroscientists is that just one episode of a major depressive disorder which means two weeks or more of a depressed mood and five of nine symptoms increases the risk of a second episode by 50%, which is why it's so important for everyone, you know, to use whatever mechanisms they have to connect, even if it's through devices or some of the really imaginative ways that people have found to connect, whether it's joining people who are singing in the streets of Italy from their balconies or feeling like there's someone at the other end of our device. This is a, an, a, a, such an important time for us to deal with the anxieties and the uncertainty and the unknown of this pandemic. You're listening to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. One of the problems that we're dealing with is feeding people. It's normally a problem we deal with, but millions of kids, of course, get fed at school lunches. But there's no school. So what's going on? Billy Shore is founder and chief executive officer of Share Our Strength. It's a national nonprofit ending childhood hunger in America. And its campaign, No Kid Hungry, 
has gone into action here to help solve this problem. Billy, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gil. Thanks so much for having me. So kids get lunch at school, no school, no lunch. How big a problem is this and how do we deal with it? Well, school children have never faced a situation like we're in now. I guess none of us have, but school children are in some ways even more vulnerable than others. We've got about 50 million kids in public school in this country, and all those schools are closed and most private schools as well. But public school kids in particular are more likely to be part of the uh, school breakfast or the school lunch program, and those meals are no longer available to them. Uh, Their bodies are still growing. They still have the need for the nutrition. Um, And so we've had to create a uh, really almost like an alternate universe, thousands and thousands of alternate sites where kids can safely get the meals that they used to get in school. And that's, as you can imagine, a very hard thing to do. The kids can't come to the sites themselves. Social distancing makes it quite a challenge. But, um, But of all the issues that we face with coronavirus, this is the most solvable because we have the food in this country. The amazing thing is how quickly some people have taken action. Yeah, it, it's quite miraculous, actually. It reminds me of during World War II when there was the rescue of uh, all the British troops at Dunkirk uh, and thousands of small fishing boats went to, went to get them when the British Army or Navy could not. It, you know, there's been this grassroots uh, uh, surge of individuals, uh, some from the school districts themselves, some from food banks, some from YMCAs, some from other community organizations that have set up sites where these meals can be distributed. So when Share Our Strength first looked at this through the lens of its No Kid Hungry campaign, we were thinking that uh, how would we ever set up all these sites and get the food there? The sites literally set themselves up Our job now is to supply them, to fund them, to make sure that they have the equipment that they need. So, for example, we've given out $2 million in grants in the last five days to 70 organizations, 78 organizations in 30 states, uh, so that communities would be able to get these sites fully supplied. Now, we're talking here about millions of kids. I mean, kids have already missed close to 200 million meals just in a couple of weeks. It's a huge number, and we're we're basically taking the number of kids who get these school meals and, you know, multiplying it by the number of days that they're out of school. So it adds up pretty quickly. Um, Now, fortunately, I think a lot of families are able to, you know, make things work for a few days. And so we had those few days to get these alternate sites set up. Uh, we're seeing the participation rates in these sites, even notwithstanding all of the obstacles created by social distancing and health concerns. We're seeing the participation rates uh, increase considerably. We talked to a, a partner of ours who runs many of the YMCA sites, and they've seen a dramatic increase day on day uh, over the last three or four days. Now, you've been talking with people on your podcast, Ad, Passion, and Stir, who are taking part in this effort. We spoke with Stacy McDaniel, who runs the nutrition services for the YMCAs. She's their anti-hunger nutrition expert. And she told us that uh, from one day to the next, they've seen this really significant increase in uh, families coming to get meals for their kids. We know the need just keeps growing. We had a a mother who was actually, the irony of this story is actually pretty gut-wrenching but it's the Granite YMCA in New Hampshire. And the schools, God bless our school nutrition workers. They have never worked so hard in their lives. Um, I think they're so underappreciated, but 
here's to say they are true hunger heroes stepping up right now all across this country. But, you know, schools are able to offer lunches at it's a designated time. This mother works in a grocery store and her pantry's barren. She wasn't able to make it in time. She had to work during that service. She was able to connect that night at a YMCA supper site and get dinner and a bag of groceries. She was in tears. She was talking about the extreme need that they're in. And on top of not having enough to typically get your month's worth of groceries, now you're dealing with food shortages. We had a mom with a seven-year-old autistic son. She had been to five grocery stores trying to just get basic necessities and things were sold out. So the problem is just compounding as this time goes on. We know that the need is extremely high. Families are struggling. We've had so many moms that have been laid off from their jobs and they need help. That need is only growing. We also on Add Passion and Stir spoke to Jennifer Labar. She runs food and nutrition services for the San Francisco Unified School district. Just thinking about my community um, in Northern California alone, Clovis Unified is are using their bus drivers to take um, food out to the rural communities, and it just it gives me so much joy and so much hope. Sorry, um, that we're all pulling together and doing this wonderful work. It, the heroes really are food service workers who are in the field and they're doing this every day, and they're putting these bags together and interacting with the families. And it's so great because employees are recognizing all the children, and now they're getting to meet the parents. And so we're finding joy in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this sadness. And so people are finding these connections, and it's possible, and good things are happening. So how do you do this? I'm a local agency, let's say, and this all sounds great, but I don't know who to go to or how to access these grants. Well, we're in the business of making sure that School districts and emergency food providers, principally food banks, have the resources they need to feed kids during this uh, very, very difficult time. And so we have a grant-making process. Uh, Anybody can go to our website, nokidhungry.org, find out how to apply for a grant. We're literally making hundreds of them um, and supporting communities all across the country. And those grants can be used to buy food. They can be used to buy supplies. They can be used to increase awareness uh, for families. We're turning them around really fast, faster than we ever have before, literally within uh, two or three or four days of getting the application. The, The good news here is we have witnessed an absolutely astonishing uh, display of generosity. We've had 29,000 Americans make donations to this work, to the No Kid Hungry campaign on our website, 29,000 Americans in the last six days. And 92% of them are new first-time donors who have not been involved with our organization before. I think people see this as a solvable problem. They see kids as the most vulnerable. They know that they can make a direct difference and have a direct impact. Okay, let's talk about individuals, not agencies now. What can they do? I think the best way to feed hungry kids right now is to go to nokidhungry.org, to go to our donate page or our coronavirus response page and find a way that you can uh, either donate or volunteer or uh, we might be asking you to write to your member of the House or the Senate 
there's lots of ways for individuals to get involved here, but the impact is direct. It's fast. Um, once you contribute to us, you get notes about where that money went, what grants were made with it. And I think people will find out that, you know, this is a part of the coronavirus tragedy that we can actually address and solve. People are saying that after this, things in society will change forever. What do you see changing? Well, we probably can't foresee all of the ways in which uh, our work uh, and our society will be changed forever, but there are clearly some. For one, I think the issue of childhood hunger has been imprinted uh, on people's minds in a way that it just wasn't before. I think there's going to be an elevated uh, sense of awareness and consciousness about it, and that might be a silver lining to come out of this. I also, also think that we're going to find that we uh, can do our work in ways that we didn't realize, that we can be faster, that we can be less bureaucratic, that we can get assistance to people uh, without the usual red tape, and that it, it's okay to make some mistakes, and it's okay if um, you know, maybe a few people uh, get something that they shouldn't have uh, have received uh, in the interest of making sure that 99% of the kids and families who need our help get it right away. So we're learning a lot. I think it's going to make us a better grant provider and a better uh, social impact organization. You mentioned that podcast earlier, Add Passion and Stir. Can you tell us where you can find that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. The best thing to do is to go to your favorite podcast app and find Add Passion and Stir and download it. Uh, we've got uh, an archive of so many great conversations with not only people who are doing amazing work in the community on behalf of children and families, and we have people like Jose Andreas, like Mary Sue Millican, Jody Adams, Ming Tsai. Uh, you'll know so many of the chefs. There'll be many of your favorites, and they're in conversation uh, on a regular basis with people doing great work in the community. Billy Shore, Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign, which is getting these meals to kids all across the country. Billy, thank you for being with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. CBS Audio presents Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. There's been a lot of talk about how this is, of course, an election year and the disruptions because of COVID-19, but it is also a disruption in plans for a presidential transition. And yes, a presidential transition, even if President Trump is reelected. David Marchek is the director of the Center for Presidential Transition. It is the nation's premier nonpartisan source of information and resources designed to help presidential candidates and their teams lay the groundwork for a new administration or for a president's second term. Also, the host of Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. David, welcome. And I think that probably comes as a surprise to some people that even if somebody is re-elected, there is a transition into a second term. It's It shouldn't be a surprise because in every new presidency, in every fifth year of a presidency, there's huge turnover. So when a new president comes in, there are about 1,200 Senate-confirmed positions and 4,000 positions overall. It's basically the biggest takeover of any organization in the world. When a president is elected for a second term, the data suggests that almost half of his or her top people leave within six months of the second inauguration. So they need to plan as well. So what are the possible hiccups here because of the 
the addition of the COVID-19 problem to a transition? Well, for the Trump administration, if they have a second term, they need to fill positions. There are a bunch of positions that are vacant, including in areas related to health and health security. So if Trump is reelected, he needs to be able to attract the best and the brightest and very good people to fill those jobs. If Biden or Sanders is president, they'll need a whole new team and they want to hit the ground running fast. Part of what the Democratic candidate will want to do is rebuild the institutions that maybe have lost some of their best people in the last few years and revitalize the government. And so this transition could be the most important transition plan ever for a Democratic candidate. David, there was a recent article that brought before the public something that I think most members of the public don't know about, which is called a tabletop exercise, and especially one particular exercise that was done between the Obama and Trump administration. Can you tell us about that? So Politico recently did a story that covered something called a tabletop exercise, which is actually mandated under a law where the outgoing administration needs to do a scenario planning exercise with the incoming administration. One thing that Michael Lewis said on the podcast was that Barack Obama said his biggest worry leaving the White House was a pandemic. So they picked a pandemic as the tabletop exercise to do with the incoming Trump administration. And the Politico story basically talked about that exercise and the exact issue that the Obama people warned the Trump people that a pandemic was coming. You've talked to a lot of people on Transition Lab about this, people who have been in the midst of this. I want to grab a couple of excerpts here from Transition Lab. First, your conversation with financial writer Michael Lewis. Having seen what we've seen in the Trump's administration's response to this, and in particular, having seen now, having we've had exposed um, the fact that the pandemic response infrastructure was treated just like all the rest of the government by the transition and by the administration. Um, uh, you know, I think, my God, it's it's a natural chapter in the book and probably the first chapter in the sequel. Um, and y- you, you know, th- even now, I think the American people are only partially aware of what the government might have done if it had been properly prepared and, and, um, and waiting for, for, for this problem to happen versus what has happened. But when the dust settles on it, you'll be able to measure the cost in, in thousands, if not tens of thousands of lives. Want to hear also from Andrew Card, who is Deputy Chief of Staff for President George H.W. Bush and then Chief of Staff for President George W. Bush. Let's hear what he had to say on Transition Lab. I tell you that the goal should be today that the president doesn't say anything he doesn't know to be the truth, that he doesn't practice hyperbole, and he doesn't uh, overly uh, state the nature of the problem. But yes, lift people up to so that they understand that we can solve these problems. We can work together. We can make it through. So what, what I recommend today is that uh, take this coronavirus COVID-19 seriously. Practice social distancing. Keep those people from who are most vulnerable from being infected with the disease and pull together, rally as a country. That's what I would tell people. From talking to the people that you've talked to, David, in terms of this extraordinary situation that we have because of the coronavirus, what what are they telling you the most? What what's what's the the central problem for them or the central concern? I think the biggest issue is the tension between the Trump team and the career federal servants, those that are scientists, those that are experts on epidemiology, and basically who is making the decisions 
on what's best for the country. Obviously, President Trump is the ultimate decision maker. But one of the key things that we've learned on Transition Lab, we had Thad Allen on who did the, the response to both Katrina and the BP oil spill. One of the points that he made is that president needs to rely on the experts in their field and defer to them on these critical decisions. You're listening to the CBS special, Coronavirus, Change Forever. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Coronavirus Changed Forever, presented by Zoom Video Conferencing. Welcome back to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. The health and welfare of our family, friends, and neighbors is, of course, the most important consideration when we consider the effects of this particular coronavirus pandemic. But when a pandemic emerges, its careless disregard for our well-being also strikes at the financial stability of our country. Now, it's possible you'll never develop COVID-19. Tom Frieden, the former director of the Center for Disease Control, says as many as 50% of people in the United States could possibly catch this virus. But even if you are spared, it's very likely your financial health will not be. So let's take a look at what's happening with the economy, your job, and what the federal government is doing to try to help you stay afloat in the troubled waters stirred by this COVID-19 pandemic. The world economy has never shut down this fast. Millions of people are going to lose their jobs, and that's what's so scary. Congressional sources tell CBS News that the bill now contains $130 billion for hospitals. I should say, David, most businesses probably are not likely to reopen if there is still a health crisis. Stock market freefall, the near freeze in the bond markets. staggering number. Nearly 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. Jill Schlesinger is a certified financial planner, also the Emmy-nominated and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News. Jill appears on CBS radio and television stations nationwide covering the economy, markets, investing, anything else with a dollar sign. Jill, good to have you here. Thanks. Great to be with you. We are in such new territory here, but let's start with a hopeful note. Some economists think we're going to rebound quickly from this because they say, look, this isn't so much a financially caused disaster like the meltdown in 2008, but something that when we have a treatment may have the economy bounce back almost instantly. that possible? Uh, I don't think so. When I talk to a lot of economists, they're not thinking this is immediate. There's going to be a lot of deep and painful periods ahead. I think the question is we just don't know. Uh, the longer this lasts in terms of the spread of the virus, uh, the the worse it's going to be. Now, of course, this near $2 trillion coming out of Washington, D.C. is going to be helpful. But I think the hopes of this being a quick, like, hurry up, get it over with, like as if it were a storm that blows through, I think that might be a little optimistic. I'm not saying it's going to be horrible and it's not going to be as probably not as prolonged as the previous recession. But I think that we should really buckle up and understand that the next uh, three, four, maybe six months are going to be tough. 
Well, just as some people are more vulnerable in their health, certain people and businesses are more vulnerable to financial damage from this coronavirus crisis. How do we prioritize who gets help? Well, I think that that's exactly what the federal government is trying to do with this trillion, $2 trillion lifeline, essentially. You know, if you look at individuals, what they're uh, attempting to do is to quickly put money in the pockets of uh, of Americans who make less than $75,000. There'll be some money for those who make up to 99000 but the bulk of the money is going to folks who make less than $75,000. They'll get a $1,200 check per adult in the household. And the same group of people will get $500 per child in that household. So I think that's a real help. Maybe more importantly, the federal government also beefed up the unemployment system. And I think this is critical because for too long, we've had an unemployment system that's basically locked out the gig workers in the economy, meaning the people who are independent contractors, 1099, sole proprietors, freelancers. And in the unemployment aspect of this of this legislation, they're basically opening it up and saying unemployment benefits will be in, will be paid out to those folks who are basically on their own. Not only that, but the federal government will also extend your state's unemployment benefits by 13 weeks and will pay an extra $600 on top of what you receive from your state. And I think those two things together are really going to be important. Okay, you mentioned the checks that we're going to be getting. How quickly will those arrive to the people who are eligible? Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting. The federal government is 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 sort of hell-bent on getting the money out. So once the legislation is signed, if you have a direct deposit account on record with the government, so if you're a Social Security recipient and that Social Security check directly goes into a bank account, the government has your information. And if you've filed your taxes electronically, the government probably has that information. And for those folks, you'll get your money pretty fast, probably within two or three weeks of the legislation being passed and signed by the president. I think it's going to be really a little bit more of a wait for those who rely on paper checks, uh, maybe up to maybe three or four months. When it comes to your unemployment benefits, you know, the, the state systems have really become inundated. And I think the problem is that when you look at these state systems and you hear that, uh, you know, websites went down, the, the what usually would happen in a normal time is that your state would usually have a one-week waiting period. You'd get, you'd claim your benefit and you get paid. But right now, the government is encouraging states to waive that one-week period. Um, and I'm hearing that two to three weeks has really become a more reasonable time to expect unemployment money. So, Jill, I've had listeners tell me that property taxes, which for many people are coming due, should be postponed along with income taxes. But those taxes often directly support county and city hospitals, as well as firefighters and police and health clinics, right at a time when such agencies are asking for more, not fewer resources. Well, the government is going to try to help out states. And I think that this is what we're going to see more and more of, you know, as we go forward, because I think that states are going to become are really going to be operating under uh, an enormous amount of pressure. So what we are likely to see is that the government's going to have to come to the aid of the states. There is money in this um, in this plan for states, also for hospitals and public hospitals. But this could be an area where we're going to have to see the government do more. So a lot 
of what we have here are loans and loan guarantees. That's obviously helpful, but it adds to the debt of some companies and small businesses that may already have been holding about as much debt as they can handle. What are we looking at here? Well, I mean, I think there's something really kind of clever in the in the um, legislation, and that is for small businesses, if they assume a loan and they maintain their payroll levels that they had previously, that loan will be forgiven. So it's essentially like the government saying, I'll pay you to keep your workers on on your payrolls. So I think that's really helpful. And obviously, the government is encouraging forbearance, meaning that um, with you, if you have a lender that's you know sort of beating down your door, there's going to be aspects of this that you're going to get some leeway. We saw that with federal uh, student loans. We are seeing that in pretty much every part of the lending chain. So I think that that this is a period of time that if you are suffering, the most important thing you can do is actually tell the institution where you owe the money that you are suffering, that you have been laid off, get it on the record so that you will be entitled to forbearance. And during this period, the forbearance, most likely they're going to waive your fees. They're going to waive penalties. They're not going to accrue interest. So all of this will be uh, inured to your benefit if you get a jump on it. People are saying that after this, things in society will change forever. What do you see changing? We've never seen a sudden stop and seizure of the U.S. economy uh, in the modern era since World War II. We've never experienced anything like this. And we're about to see a huge experiment, um, and hopefully it works sooner rather than later. Thank you, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Jill Schlesinger is, again, the Emmy-nominated and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News. You're listening to the CBS special, Coronavirus, Change Forever. Coronavirus, Changed Forever, presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus, Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. So might this virus change us forever? Michael Curry is the presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church, and on the Soul of the Nation podcast, he talked about how he's changed in this time. One thing I am aware of is there's a consistent challenge to me, to my higher and better self, that left, I think, left unto my own devices, I would be pretty self-centered, and it would be all about me. Yes, love your neighbor as yourself, but love your neighbor. <laughs> what does it look like for Michael Curry locked up in his house with plenty of heat, plenty of food, feeling okay at this moment? So am I just to keep that and be satisfied just with being Michael? Or am I supposed to do what I can do, even with these limitations, in order to help somebody? Like that old song says, if I can help somebody along the way, then my living will not be in vain. How can I help somebody along the way? My own family, to be sure, but my immediate neighbors, but my broader neighbors, the neighborhood of the world, the whole of the hood, if you will. Now, we've talked about things you can do during this hour, which I hope made you feel a little less helpless, but let's face it. Much about this virus, other than following good sanitary habits, is beyond our control. So what else can we do? 
Well, remember at the start of the broadcast, I described this particular member of the coronavirus family, SARS-CoV-2, as being the family member you did not invite to Thanksgiving. Well, if you have a family member ostracized for some reason, then this season of life and death may seem a little silly. Reach out. Call them. I mean, we can't hug, but there's other ways we can touch people. If you go out and maybe just made some sandwiches, you can make an extra one for that needy person you pass by. Again, don't touch, but put it down in a baggie six feet away. You may get a thank you loud enough to hear 10 feet away. As we talked about with No Child Hungry, there are charities, national and where you live, seeing to it that children are fed. We have a record number of households in America that are single people, no one to vent their fears or frustrations with, also nobody to check on them. If you don't have their number, email, or social media contact, you can ring the bell or leave a note in the mailbox asking if they need anything. And if you're that person who's alone, don't be shy about reaching out. If you're the kind of person who thinks you're not important enough for people to think about, look at it this way. There's no baseball, basketball, political debates. Hey, this may be your chance. And you may be surprised to learn there are people who always wanted to hear from you. Sometimes being unemployed, for instance, feels shameful to talk about to people going through it. Well, not now. you got plenty of company. If you talk to friends, don't be afraid to talk about being afraid. We like to share funny memes more than we like to talk about real feelings, but this is a time when we all need a little more contact than that. But look, if you're more comfortable talking about what TV shows you're binge-watching right now that somebody else may like, go for it. Almost everybody wants to hear that, even me. I just finished all four seasons of The Expanse in a week. We all need some help there. Look, this is real. No one wants it to be, and it will go away in time. We just want everyone to be here when it does. And if we can't, use this period of distancing to maybe get a little closer. I'm Gil Gross, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall. This has been Coronavirus, Changed Forever, from CBS. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.